Next Chapter Podcasts. Next Chapter Podcasts. Hi, welcome back to How I Got Greenlit. I'm your host, Alex Collegian. This week, we continue our conversation with actress, writer, producer, Nadine Crocker, as she tells her unique story and the trials of tribulations of starting as an actor, not finding success or satisfaction, and deciding to tell her own incredible story. Her first film is being produced by Cassian Elwes, legendary indie producer, and she shares quite a bit and bears her soul, and we're very grateful for it. And it's actually a very, uh, I'd call it a very emotional episode. We all kind of share a lot about our past, our situations, our personalities, our fears, our hopes, desires. Nadine is a soulful cat, and she went there in her film. She went there in her talk, and I think that's just who she is, and brought out a lot in both me and my co-host, Ryan Gibson. So we're pretty proud of this one. This is a part two because we like to talk, but you're going to dig it. We talk more about her career and the making of her film, as well as the influence on the incredible film Seven, directed by David Fincher. Thanks for joining us and enjoy your listen. Roll them. So you've invested everything you have. You, you have actually have to leave LA. You, you go, you basically become road warriors at that point, right? You and you, <laughs> well, my pa- at least my, pa- my family, like my son and my husband were stationary in Fresno and they just stayed there. I was a road warrior, pretty much like a <laughs> vagabond going back yeah. and forth. Staying on couches so that I could do all the post work once the post the post house finally opened back up after the pandemic lockdown, and driving back to Fresno and going back and forth and living on I mean thank God for Christelle was our production supervisor at that little post house that we found that we did all of the sugar work at and was that yeah, sugar? sugar sugar yeah big sugar shout studios. out to sugar studios exactly and shout out to Christelle who let me live and she pretty much let me live in her room I slept in her bed and she slept in her roommate's bed who was in Italy so it actually worked out weirdly perfect timing otherwise I, I legitimately probably would have been in my car and I would have never told a single soul because that continue needed to be finished and the people that were working for me needed to respect me as the director who you know were doing this shit but yeah it was we had the you know, it was like either keep my very expensive rent in Los Angeles or put that into the credit card payments that I had to take on to, you know, get the money that we needed to be able to finish the film with all these new expenses and all of that. And luckily, you know, grandma and grandpa here, my mom and dad in Fresno had some extra bedrooms and we were, you know, what I, what I always figured eventually would happen to me, like I'm in fact, I was 15, I figured somewhere around 20, I'd go back. I certainly didn't think it'd be you know, 32 or 33 with, with, with a husband and a, and a, and a, and a, a yeah, three-year-old. So this might be a bad segue, but during that filming process, did you have a greenlit moment? I know you had, you know, you were on cabin fever. I know you had other successes as an, as an actor. Did you have a greenlit moment on that set where you were standing there in character as director, as writer, as producer, uh, all of these things, having put your entire, basically, future on the line, 
did your green lit moment come during filming or did you have a green lit during moment during filming or did it come after, after you were able, because we can talk about, I really want to talk about your sacrifice. Obviously we've gone into that, but where you ended up, where you are now. Uh, so well, I'll say, I want to be honest, the green lit moments happen every day. Like, you know, when I finally locked in and got a, the contract that took eight months with my investors to negotiate. Yeah, <laughs> right? you were still, yeah, there were I mean, still negotiations. We had ended at least with the initial investment because I got started. They started at least the cash flow once that started. You and had my, enough, you had enough to start, to, but well, you didn't have enough to finish, to start right? With mine. Yeah, exactly. I had to start with my big chunk of money and be like, okay. And then their cash flow starts here. And, and you know, when that happens, so, you know, but the day I'll say the green light moment I have is the day I was serving tables, prepping a movie and you know, yeah, most people don't even know this. Leo Tipton came in like the week, uh, the day before her offer was going in. I was humiliated that I am serving the tables and I'm supposed to be her waitress, their, their waitress. And I'm like, oh my God. And so I actually asked someone else to take the table because I was like going to be meeting them in like a week to direct them in a movie. And, are, you you know, so- are you serious? Yeah, is that no a true story? This is a true story. You're this saying you were, you were you were a server at a restaurant uh, that Leo Sawyer took- and Silver Lake. We ended up shooting there, right? And so you know that location. Yeah, I was a server there, and Leo came in with her um, fiance. Well, not that now fiance, but yeah, they and they had and two friends, Are and they were like on a double date. And the offer was going in via Carrie Barden a day later. Complete, like they, completely random event in your life. Random. Has nothing. Holy. Has, Leo doesn't even know this, by the way. I'm, I'm giving some information that Leo, I don't think, even knows that this happened yet. Well, it's too, <laughs> We've it's too never late. talked about it. It's too late. Know, Movie's so, on a hard drive, Leo. Sorry know, about it. Can't Leo pull out. This. No, well, Leo would love that. Like they're the oh, most she's humble, a very, most, they're uh, the most special human being. They believe in me more than anybody. Like, when she they did. talk about, yeah, when they talk about t- working with me and the type of director I am, I, I started to cry on our, on our Q&A after the virtual cinequest. I was just like, you know, because it, it's just so touching and, and you don't know the type of director you are really. Like, I know how I am and I'm an empath. That's how I direct. I, I relate things to emotion and to the humanity of it. And then I can kind of be like, well, it's almost like this time when I spent and, you know, and we'd, so we, that's what she they said was so special about uh, our set is that in every moment we weren't filming, someone was divulging some of the most in-depth, tragic or beautiful, or just the most raw emotion stories from their life. We were all just, it just ripping ourselves open and being honest and vulnerable with each other. It was, it was raw. And she, and they said like, I've never been on a single set before or since. And I probably never will. That was as open and as, vulnerable and as raw as that set was and it was beautiful you know and and yeah I don't know that any of my films will ever feel that way but I know that that was such a cool experience about that but yeah so my green light moment was the day I got to put my two-week notice into that oh, fucking restaurant and that allowed you to, to film that. my movie you know? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm literally sorry I'm yelling and I'm dancing right now but like that was that moment where I have been waitressing for like 10 years, 13 years at this point, I am like, 
I've always wanted to direct the film. I always knew I would. I thought I had to make it first and like, you know, and all of these things. And I'm sitting there, I get my financing and we're going. And the actor that I had to be like, will you please uh, serve their table? Because I don't want them to know I'm their waitress. And I ended up doing my movie and I'm on a movie set, like literally weeks later, prepping, you know, my, my other grand moment, I will say, like my husband says this all the time. He knew it was real and it was really cool. And he had met some of my crew and some of these people I was choosing to be my department heads. But when he walked in for our pre-production meeting and I have like a crew of like a hundred people sitting around me at that table, at that giant production or like table and everyone's sitting there and they're, you know, giving questions and I'm giving, you know, and explaining things and going back and forth. He was like, not only a, did I see you for the first time, not as my wife, but as a real effing director, he's like, but be the way that they listen to you, the way that they respect you, the way that you guys dissected things, the way that everyone was there and showing up and always stayed showing up for me, you know, like literally, I think if it wasn't for the crew's love for me, half of them would have been like, see ya, you know? Yeah. Like, everybody loved you. Shoot. Yeah, and, everybody, and I don't mean that like, oh, no, yeah, everybody but, like but I do. Oh, I think Here we go. They, <laughs> <laughs> I think they knew that I would not, I would not, I would do anything that I asked them to do, I would do it too, you know, like, and I would help. I would, uh, if I'm asking you to move stuff, I'm literally picking it up and moving it with you, you know, like, and I think that that made this family environment. That's all I can say. It yeah, was it really was beautiful family dynamic. It was, it was. And I, and the, I, I think if anyone is aspiring out there to get involved with this, you know, we, we, and I think Alex said this in one of our interviews is like, our guest was talking about it, talking about how these are families. You start a family and you are, you, you, you meet people who you're going to know the rest of your life. There's a few of those people. You meet a lot of people who you meet one time or you'll see on another set. I've met other people who I worked with on continue uh, who subsequently ended up working with on other films, uh, not because I hired them or, or, but because they're in the, they, they make movies, they're in the quote unquote business and you end up running into them and, and it's still something that's like these families and this emotion, especially with continue singularly with continue really was just so massive and the weight of it all. I think it all comes through on screen. I love your, I love your green lip moment. It's so fantastic. It's so <laughs> for a first time outing, Nadine. Good job. <laughs> Congratulations on giving up everything to make your dreams come true. It literally has to happen that way sometimes, huh? Sometimes. And I think, you know what? I, I, I wouldn't change a part of the journey. I was I just going to say that. Yeah. Would you have had it, it any other way? I mean, yeah. I <laughs> no. I wouldn't because it's taught me so much and it's taught me so much about patience and also timing. And like, what I will say is like, I thought a lot of the rejection, like, cause we were, you know, it, there was a moment of trying to find a home for it in a world of studio films taking over festivals and most festivals being closed down completely. And the few big ones were just like, you know, some of the biggest films, how could you compete with like the stars that films that were premiering at these festivals and the Sundances and the other things of the world. For Love and Thunder at Sundance. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And you're like, what? Um, So there was, you know, some fear and some moments there. But but what I'll say that I really learned at the end of it is like, you know, I'm a very spiritual person. I I, I believe that I'm I'm on this planet for a reason. I, uh, you know, for 
should have died in my twenties and I'm here and I'm, and it's all part of the journey. And so as I look at the end of this journey as where it's like starting to go to, I'm understanding that like where we ended up was exactly where we ended up. We ended up at a festival that like really believes in us, really believes in the film. Like we, we've been winning awards at some of the festivals that we're at, you know, I won best feature film and, you know, best actor, actress, the Beverly Hills Film Festival and like all these things. And it's like, yeah, it would have been great, sure, to go and to be at some of the ones that, you know, maybe that we first applied to and all of those things. But I think that we're a tiny film and who knows if we would have gotten the same moment that we're getting with these people who actually see us. Like I feel seen, you know, as a filmmaker. And right. and I think we found our people and, and that's a really cool feeling. So I'm I'm part I'm grateful for the for the way it all went and the journey it's been, you know, and and it's really prepared me for my next film and like, and gotten my stamina really strengthened for what I can endure. I think people don't really understand. It's not roses and money. It's like, there's no, this is hard work, like 16, 18 hours a day and every day. And like when I said earlier, family, you truly become a family because you are with these people more than you're with your husband or your child, mm -hmm. but you're actively writing scripts, rewriting mm -hmm. scripts, your career, you have a career in filmmaking now. You, you gambled it all and it, you, you, you hit, you got, you got your money back from the house. Right. I mean, not, not no, literally, no, not, 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 not literally, not literally, not, not literally, but you are, you are a writer, you are a direct writer, director. Right. Yes, I yes, am. You I are, am a writer, doing director, and just, producer. Yeah, I've and been producer. brought on as a producer on every project I'm on now. Like you know, and so my next film God, actually that's shooting in August. God help us. God I know, us. right? <laughs> I'm so, so excited. I'm so stoked for you. It's just you. really amazing. And so there are projects to come. Nadine Crocker is actively working on two or three right now as we speak. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. And I just actually like the one thing I want to do. Say like my other next green light moment is. I'm working with a person who I call my muse that I wrote like three characters for. He's the actor I've respected and loved like so much of my life. And now he's like become one of my closest friends. And it's just like one of those moments where you're like, if you had told me that this was going to happen a year ago, I think I would have been like, no fucking way, you know? Can you say this person's name? I don't know. Can I? I, I wonder if I'll get in trouble because but by the time this comes out, it'll be announced. So I guess, I mean, yeah, Gary yeah do it. Garrett Hedlund is one of my favorite actors and one of my favorite it's humans. Great. I attached him in my next film. He's one of the lead actors of it. And through my friendship with him, I've got to become friends with so many other really cool human or like, you know, meet other human beings. And he's, you know, an EP on this film. So yeah. People are getting to know you. Yeah, it's, they are. And, and getting to know me as a filmmaker and, and hearing him talk about continue even is like one of those moments I literally pinch myself like, you know, this is someone he was, you know, I, not to take away from the cast that I got on continue. I wouldn't change a single thing. I love Shia. Shia I have, I had calls that with him for later today. Like one of my favorite human beings alive, you know, but originally when I was writing that, like I had Garrett Hedlund in mind just because he's like the essence of cool. And that's what I had, you know, and, and it's just like, how funny that now uh, the next script that I'm making, I'm actually working with him and he's actually attached to a couple projects. So we've, we've got a lot of stuff happening in the pipeline and kind of working on writing some stuff together. And so, you know, it's just, it's been a really surreal year of like moments of having no idea how I'm necessarily going to be able to provide with also having some of the coolest stuff that's ever happened yeah. to me in my life at the same time. That is what this industry is. It's never all roses and it's never all, 
this or that, but there's, it's like anything in life. There is struggle and there is beauty and they both are amazing and the ride is amazing and and both of them are hard and and then it makes it all worth it and then you go through another lull where you're like god damn this is so hard <laughs> you yeah, know but i'm just trying just... to maintain level flight you know <laughs> just, yeah, I, I, the plane keeps going up the plane keeps going down i just want to maintain level flight yeah not yeah. not too high not too low because if you do if you ride the roller coaster, it's it's rough. It's rough because every day is in that you never know what's around the corner. I let me see if I can get some more in here, some more uh, euphemisms or. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sharing all of that. But now we're going to take some time as audience members, as people who love movies, and who you you've brought one to us today. Seven by David Fincher, one of our favorites. Definitely. I'm going to lodge a complaint with the league that it doesn't technically count. As you're going to say this film. isn't a B-side is what you're saying. I'm operating under duress, but I will abide by the league rulings on this. But I say it's not a B-list. It's a it's an A Before side. the it's flag an, gets thrown, let's talk about this yes. for a second. So Seven came out when? It's 20 years old now, right? Be, okay, yes, so that fits very, under the yes, that back. fits under the fifteen year rule. So I'm gonna go. With, I'm gonna say, is that the Hollywood date? No, I'm just saying. <laughs> we we said earlier. Half your age said, plus no, seven. We said earlier in the podcast. We've said earlier. 1995. It's 27. Oh my years god. Old. Older than most of our crew. Yeah, older than most crew. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> so that's true. So I, I'm gonna. So not only they haven't seen it, they haven't heard of it. It was not even on their radar. I don't know about that because this is a Brad Pitt. Classic. Okay. Even if I don't know directors, but it's not Fight Club. Plus, it's, and it's not it, any of his it, modern it's ones. It's bigger than Fight Club. I would I argue do, that I Fight agree, Club is top 10 for Nadine. disenchanted, dorky boys in dorm rooms. I don't That's know. Oh, go, Nadine. Come on. That's the Fight Club. Fight Club has become like one of the most, like, uh, as far as like licensing and product, like the highest. Oh, they have bars of soap now with it. Like it's everywhere. Fight Club is like it's still well, they have seven biggest. soap. You just have to look for it. Yeah, no. they have seven soap. They, no. they do. It has chunks of flesh in it. Now, it's actually really good. It's a collagen correct. source. I did get a, yeah. an iPhone case that has seven. It looks like one of his journals. So, like, if you can get merchandising that's an iPhone case, <laughs> yay! It's probably not a. That was a not. That, that was a knockoff. Said. Merch. It's all about merch. <laughs> right? No, I'm just look. I, I guess the action right, figures from uh, seven. It, it, is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. Like the I have the toy that's the obese guy at the table. <laughs> That would be sick. How do I say this? Maybe, maybe the awareness level is equal between seven and five. No. But I'm arguing that it's more mainstream. It set the basically the modern serial killer, killer, killer. serial killer um, genre into full kind of bloom. Do you like what you do for a living? These things you see. You have to wear blinders sometimes. Most times. Detective William Somerset is looking for a way out. You're retiring. Six more days and you're all the way gone. So how long have you lived here? Too long. 
Detective David Mills is looking for a way in. We'll be spending every waking hour together from now until the time I leave. I'll show you who your friends and enemies are. Look, I'm with Homicide five years. Not here. Now, they're caught in a game. No fingerprints and no witnesses of any kind. Nope. About the only thing we know about that guy right now is he's totally insane. Where the price of sin is dead. It had the perfect script. It was Kevin Spacey was the perfect bad guy. But that was one of his and first it, movies, it, right? It was. Yes. After Alien. Yes. Or Alien 3. But, um, but, and that, but the, I guess the reason that I look at it like that, now that it's probably one of his most famous films, because he is Fincher, right? Like, I, I have his arm, his name tattooed on my arm. So, like, it's now that famous. Really? But of the, yes, I do. It was, it's actually an inside joke after the film, but I have what would Fincher do with seven dashes down below? Um, because it was. So that's why we're here. I see, exactly. I see. You asked me to talk about a film. I'm always going to pick a Fincher film because he's what one of my favorites. What would Fincher do? And that, nice. by the way, is I like because it. I was, all of the moments on my movie that I go, two are the ones that I knew in my gut. I fought and then I go, forget it. Like, this isn't, I'm not going to fight this fight with. Die Turnbull right now on the last shot of the movie. I you know, do. I, mean, I'm not, I do yeah, remember. You know I do remember moments. standing. <laughs> I do remember standing next to you and you saying, "What am I going to do, Ryan? I can't. I'm not going to fight. This isn't one of the ones I'm going to fight for." This like, isn't one I remember you just for. being exasperated. And and on you know, I was a producer on Alex's movie, and I love those moments when. You turn to your and Jay Seals is your creative confidant. Yeah. <laughs> He's your creative producer, and I I love being a part of those moments where you're like, I'm I'm not going to fight this fight because it you have to pick and choose. I I don't want to get back into it, but you have to pick and choose your fights because it, time is money, and uh, sometimes those don't. But I I think it's hilarious that you and mime is money. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's um, funny. You remember? No. Yeah. I mean, it's right. It's all a compromise. Comp- yes, yeah. But I, yeah. yeah. And when you listen to a Fincher like interview or any of those different things, right? Like the one thing and like the way he makes people do takes and the things like that. I was like, the one thing like I can't wait to finally reach as a filmmaker is that confidence to tell someone to go eat a big, you know, <laughs> big one. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying not to curse as much on your guys' podcast. You've been great. But, you you know? said flipping earlier. I was really proud of you. But by the yeah. way, we we are explicit. We are an explicit show. So. <laughs> The thing about him that I think directors, he's a director's director, I, I would argue, and probably not get a lot of pushback, is because of his reputation is that he doesn't compromise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he pushes exactly. people to the edge. The rest of us mere mortals have to bend to the will of the money or the actor or the light or the whatever. And he's this legend. I mean, not only do the, does the work speak for itself, but somehow he's managed to create this world for himself where you will do 80 takes, you know, mm-hmm. and you will do what you're told. And you'll like it. Cause it's going to be the best thing you do. <laughs> yeah, Correct. Like, you know, going in, like you're, you're submitting to the process. Mm-hmm. Like here it is. But like, there's, you know, I just heard another story, like with social network, it was like 167 page script. And so the studio is like, um, <laughs> And he's like, shut up. <laughs> and so 
And so he made, but here's what he did. He made, uh, he made Sorkin read the whole script into his phone and, and timed every scene. And, and he said, read it to the cadence that you think you hear it. And it was like, you know, rat-a-tat-tat and it clocked out. Right. He's like, see, it is a lot of pages, but just know that we know what we're doing. Don't worry about it. But then like the budget conversation, you know, the description of it is, you know, the studio walks in the room and they're like, so we're thinking like 25 and he's like, it will be $41 million. Because he needed 72 days. (laughs) Yeah. And he just said like, it's exactly 41 million. And they just kept saying, but, but, but he's like, I think this is a negotiation. (laughs) It's not a negotiation, you know, and directors don't just don't get that. You know, it's, it's rare. But he also admits, too, he didn't have final cut on a lot of these projects like Fight Club. I don't know about Social Network. Social Network, by then, he did. Yeah. He did? Okay. But, yeah, because he oh, talked about oh. how on Fight Club, like how he did it. And he'd have to go back and forth. And that's half of like the negotiation and half of your gift as a director maybe is that's being what, able to do that. <laughs> and maybe that's what fueled like his later attitude. It's mm-hmm. like, I'm only doing it this way and no other way. I, I won't mean, compromise. There's many tales of like stuff of his coming up. And I'm like... Like at one point he said publicly, he's like, I want to make a popcorn movie. And he really wanted to do like journey to the, uh, center of the earth. What was it? No, no. Uh, seven leagues under the sea or whatever. 20,000 leagues under the sea. The the Jules Verne, 20,000 leagues under the sea. He had a vision for doing that. And I'm like, yes, please. But of course, you know, it fell apart because that I movie mean, would be four hundred million dollars. Are you always going to do? Are you always going to do your thing? Are you going to be like your own? Just like, is this it? You're just going to do more of these, or do you aspire to do a Star Wars movie or a Marvel? Well, it's movie? so funny is that, that you on just, your radar. No, so I'll never do. Like, I don't ever see myself like that. But my next film, the one that Ryan's actually about to read, is called Universe, and it's an entire sci-fi love story all about people with disability and this future post-apocalyptic world. So I am going to do huge budgets, but it's going to be me, you know, like my way, which is, which is dark and cool. And yeah. Yeah. Your material, your, your stuff. Yeah. And I don't even mind doing someone else's script. I'm just saying like my style, like, you know, I've told people like, I'll, I'll, you know, my next film I'm directing is not my writing. And I, I've said to like the reps that I've been meeting with, like, yeah, I'm not opposed to doing other people's writing but I need you to find me the sevens, the fight clubs and the like Zodiacs of the world or like the, you know, in, in my wheelhouse, in my wheelhouse yes. it excites me because, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that's where I get to really like push myself. And like, I don't want to change myself. I want to keep learning who I am and seeing things in new ways, but yeah, I want to get bigger. And, you know, at this next film universe, the reason I'm doing it that way is because my film after that, this huge alien epic that I have is, um, kind of like an interstellar and I need experts to help me write it. I need scientists. It's like this whole concept I have. So it's like, you know, so I want to get to those budgets. Well, no, I always <laughs> ask because that's a thing, right? Directors, you know, the path now is a very interesting one. Indeed. It's like you can go from, and there's many stories you can go from like your first film that was, you know, a six figure budget if it's well executed enough, if it wins the right festival, if it gets the right sort of accolades, the next phone call could be Marvel with a hundred million dollar like franchise. And that is kind of a heady thing. And some people can handle the pressure and some people can't. And it becomes this fascinating situation where 
you seem like you have a very clear idea of what you want, a clear voice creatively, and that serves you. But when you go into that sort of arena, it's a much bigger set of toys to play with. But it's almost like more of a producer's medium, right? Like say in the 90s and the aughts, there was like the Bruckheimer school of thought, right? Where he brought in like a Michael Bay, like Fincher was part of that. And he never went that way because he didn't want to be that guy. But Michael Bay with Bad Boys and like all those music video directors that came out of that era, they they were they took the paycheck because they wanted to play with the big toys. And the the question became, could they you know, adhere to a certain formula. In that case, it was the Bruckheimer, you know, the Simpson Bruckheimer sort of like very commercial. We're doing this. Our films look like our films. The directors are, 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 you know, sort of interchangeable. And now it's sort of coming full circle that Kevin Feige said he really enjoyed having Sam Raimi direct the recent Doctor Strange sequel because he had done so many young directors with their first, second, third films because he knew he could, you know, push them around. He could basically say, here's how we do our things, right? Almost like a TV narrative of uh, mm-hmm. the producer running the show and you're, you're coming to my arena and don't fuck this up, Junior. And now he said, oh no, it was great having Raimi because he knows what the fuck he's doing. I can trust him a little more. I don't need to hold his hand through everything. Probably, probably. But he's also mature enough to understand like, this is a business, Okay, don't get too arty. Don't get too independent, right? Probably should have. And it's just it's interesting to see. Uh, yeah. Seven. So, anywho, so seven. Yeah. Now that we've gone on to a bunch of other movies, yeah, we just <laughs> floated around and came back around. No, obviously, I love it. Obviously, I'm just I'm I'm grousing a little bit. It's only the it core. Is, it's only the third core element of the show that we're trying to keep to. I understand. Right. Right. I have a close, I have a story about seven because I worked for Angus wall who was Fincher's editor for a while and they actually won some Oscars together. But when I first came out here, seven had come out and it was like one of the first movies I saw in LA. I think if I, the timeline's right. And then I went to work for Angus who I thank him for my career, but he edited the opening. Maybe, maybe he'll join maybe, us. Yeah, I hope so. He he edited the main title sequence. He did uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit. He cut the music video for that. And then he edited the opening for Fincher. That's one of his first jobs. And I got to meet David Fincher very early on because he would come into the office. That movie just has such resonance with me because it just is, it just exudes cool. Like that's one thing about him. And the other, the, just the other through line I would say is one of the coolest things about Fincher is, and I think, I don't know if he still does this. I think he does. He previses the entire movie before he shoots it. So I don't know if he, he was doing this back then, but basically he would storyboard or previs the movie digitally. And he specifically did this for panic room. And mm-hmm. for panic room, I actually got to go to that set, which was shot down in uh, part of it was shot in rally studios down in um, El Segundo, or uh, I don't know if that's El Segundo, but just South of the LAX. And they had built the entire New York block inside a studio. And it was, the control that he had in that environment was insane. It was go- it was mo- one of the most beautiful sets I've ever seen. It was that entire block where it rains and everything. I know we're getting off at seven, but 
That was a, that's a part of Fincher's magic. But it reigns in seven. Yeah. And again, about the control. Yeah. Well, yeah. Panic Room was that thing where it's like, oh, the camera's going under the door and, you know, all those Through the like, teapot he was handle. The he, he was using digital, not for like dragons. He was using it to do cool ass shots Camera that moves. you couldn't do with physical yeah, cameras. That yeah, you yeah. couldn't do normally. Um, and it, and it, yeah. That were kind of, how did he do that? Like, it was just a little bit of strange. It wasn't like, oh, it's a, it's a monster. He's a, he's CG for practical stuff. There's extensive storyboards for seven. I've seen them. They're really good. And what I wanted to talk about was when you met him, did you get a sense of the arrogance? People talk about his arrogance. And like, I, I listened to a Morgan Freeman interview about, about taking this role. And he said, they always say the same thing. He's really smart. And then, but, but Morgan Freeman kind of chuckled and he's like, he's, he's obviously extremely intelligent, but it, what, what struck me was his arrogance about it. And it just amused me. And I just wanted to be around that energy, you know? And I thought, wow, that's kind of cool. It's like, I know this guy's an asshole, but... But I want to be around that asshole asshole. more. Yeah. Um. (laughs) Join us for other episodes of How I Got Greenlit. Like the time Evan Ostrowski told us the tale of the making of Cabin Fever and his interactions with executive producer David Lynch. And we started shooting with no money because we had blown through the 250 grand that Sam had committed. And then it got hairy. You know, to Eli's credit, Eli had been working as David Lynch's assistant. We had attached David as an executive producer to the film, um, which most people don't know because he's not in the credits anywhere. David had said to Eli before we had all left, he had said, listen, you know, I can't do a David imitation. I'm sure everybody else can, but he had said, whatever happens, remember whatever happens, whatever happens, man, just remember it's your job to only think about what's going on in those 35 millimeter frames, like mm-hmm. ignore the noise and just mm-hmm. make that the best you can. And it was great advice. For this and many more, check out our entire archive, which is available at a podcast platform near you. Check them out. And now, back to the show. Do you remember seeing it in the theater? I didn't. Um, Honestly, my family didn't take me to the theater a lot. Like as much as I hear all of these amazing stories of filmmakers that got to go to the theater and and we did for some of it, like, (laughs) you know, the few theater things were like holidays or something. They'd they'd be like, okay, well, we can't just all hang at home. Let's go do something or take the kids to do something. Yeah. And then like, you know, as a family, we finally went and saw a movie once for Christmas and my dad took us to Bad Santa. And I'm I'm like seven and it's like just fucking and cuss words and snotty noses and my mom is mortified so like we didn't go to the theater much but (laughs) when I saw Seven like that's one of the things that stood out to me because you know it's one of my favorite films and it was one of the first films that I you know the coloring was like it still sticks with me when I talk to like Jill Bogdanowicz, who's my colorist. Like I, I almost always bring it back to Seven I make entire lookbooks only for my color too like with her and go over things and 
you know, I, I just had never seen a color and, and darkness and something living in the shadows. So cool. But the thing I, the thing that was seven that really stood out to me as a kid watching it, which is fucked up that I was a kid watching it (laughs) and being so stimulated and excited by it is it was one of the first stories I couldn't figure out, you know, and I've, I've always had that mind for story because movies have been pretty much my whole life of watching and watching and watching. So I learned story through that and I did not have it figured out and I had no idea what was going to happen next. And, you know, when he came and then out, you know, with his hands and his fingerprints cut off in the police station and, and he's turning himself in and you're like, what is happening? And then, you know, like jump forward to the box. I mean, like, my favorite ba- like birthday card that I give to all my closest friends on their birthday is says, what's in the box? Happy birthday. It is Brad Pitt's face. And you're like, you know, it's like that moment is iconic because I had never seen anything like it before, you know? Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a, it's definitely a roller coaster ride and Brad Pitt at his, you know, top of his game and oh. Fincher and him and worked together a few times after that, obviously for Fight Club and Benjamin Buttons, uh, which I Benjamin Buttons is a great movie too. I think I, I not as a true. I love it. Yeah, Alex, what is your memory about Seven? Nineteen ninety five is the year I moved to Los Angeles. I did see it in the theater. I don't remember where, but I think I went back and saw it again. It was kind of so ahead of its time, especially if you look at like what was going on in 95. I count 95 as like the beginning of our modern era. 95 is when Pulp Fiction so came good. out. So many 95 is when Heat came 90s. out. It was sort of the, the, begin, the end of the 80s was 1995, you know, culturally, right? It always takes a little bit longer to get that out of your system. But it was that, that the prime time of the... Auteur director, oh, for sure. a Fincher movie is a Fincher movie and Michael Mann movie is a Michael Mann movie. And that started me. I mean, that was definitely what I wanted to be when I grew up. You know, that's mm-hmm. why I came out here. That's what fueled the creation of Project Greenlight was my just yearning to be that person who had a great vision, a great way to express that vision. And then the control to get it through whatever system was going to thwart their vision, right? So I feel like this was when he clearly stated his like, yeah, I'm I'm a top 10 director for the next 40 years. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I am now. And he never looked back. I mean, I, I don't, yeah, I mean, I don't know if Benjamin Button is as good a film as this, but I will say like, I don't know these made. Of I was going to just say, has but, he made? But think of that though; it swings, right? Like if you've done a bunch of great, like Zodiac was also an amazing serial killer film, and like so mm-hmm. when you've done a lot of dark mm-hmm. films like this, that was the least Finchery film I've ever seen Fincher do. Like you know Benjamin Button, and it's so good and it's so cool. So I'm sure that at a certain point, you're like, I want to do something completely different and show another side of myself and stimulate myself in another way because I'm bored with doing it this I don't know I just think it's like it might not be the same century feel but still within itself I thought that movie was really cool and another and movie so that uses color does another yeah. movie that uses color as well I mean he definitely knows this camera and his color for sure it makes it it's his style 
I use Zodiac's reference photos all the time too. Like yeah, the color, the blue. yellow pop he used everywhere though too. Yeah, like every yeah. scene you can see where he's, I mean, even the file folders have yellow. One of the poles is yellow. His tie is yellow. You know, it's like he does these cool little pops. Like, and the yeah. way his mind works is really intriguing to see. Yeah, he draws your eye with color too. That's mm-hmm. another, it's not just placement in in the viewfinder or on screen. It's it's definitely he'll pull your eye with color and he'll mess with you with color. I think uh, girl with a dragon tattoo does that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. another one of my favorites. That's a dark blue movie, a blue movie with these like races of like bright reds and just really interesting when you break down the science of who these guys are and who they become seven was a, kind of the start of that for him was the, like you said, Nadine, the color of it all. And, the, and I, I feel just, like seven was so green too, which he doesn't, I mean, actually he does go back to green a lot, but I think yeah, each one of the so. sins, each one of the sins, I think almost had their own uh, palette. Like I remember that in that one, especially when he turns himself in at the end, like this, the scene at the end you referenced, and then all the way to the end, I feel it's very red or amber. And uh, warm. That, I mean, think yeah, of the sun-soaked imagery when we're waiting for that box and they're out in that field. I mean, yeah. it had this 70s like warmth and glow to it. It was just gorgeous while he's giving you some of the darkest shit from the movie. You yeah, know, his exposition, like, his, his, his monologue there while he's like, Kevin Spacey's trying to tell him and you see... Brad Pitt just kind of descend into the whole eventually getting into what's in the box. And well, it's, not- it's the whole point too, right? Like you're watching a character who was the most noble and had the Incru- most noble. Incorruptible, like, uncorruptible. And, and then you watch him get corrupted within moments. And like, it, it's literally like one man's unraveling and one man's sickness festering into the other man. And like, and by the end of it, you're like, of course he has to pull that trigger. Shoot that motherfucker right now. Squeeze my leg. Right? <laughs> but shoot him right now, you know? Yeah. And like when you when it goes to him in the police car, like I'll just never forget that numb, you know, that numb moment of Brad Pitt just like looking out the window. You're just like, oh man, that guy's done so for the rest of his life, you know? Uh, yeah, he's completely fucked. His emotional yeah. state is gone. And one of the uh, themes I go back to too with the colors, like you know, speaking of that the gluttony or that that thin, you know, in that house, the yellow and the glow and the golden glow and like the greens and brown, it's just yeah. I just remember looking at it and I have never really, I guess, noticed. I mean, what was I fucking eight when that movie came out? I hope I wasn't watching it at eight, but like I just remember I had never noticed color in a movie until really that film. I noticed all of the shades that we were seeing, you know? And it stuck to you long. It's it's stuck to you all this time. And you, you, uh, you said you have a tattoo of uh, what would Fincher do on your own? (laughs) Yeah. And your commitment, uh, your commitment dashes right below it. Your commitment knows. Yeah. My, and my husband got what would, uh, Coppola do. So like, you know, we did our, those trying to remind ourselves as we're coming up, like you have to have that same belief and that same confidence and that, like, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for where you won't, you won't give in on your, like you stick to your guns. Um, you know what I'm trying to say. Intestinal fortitude. Alex is, Alex is the wordsmith. He, I always look to him to come up with the stupid stuff that I say. And then he corrects me. (laughs) Right, Alex. Yeah. The standard. I think it was Shakespeare who said it best. Uh, it's me want me, me want me want me want. want. Hulk demands this. 
what I love about looking back on these kind of movies is he really, I mean, there's so many things I, it could just digress into like the Chris Farley, like, you remember that time when he moved the camera really cool? (laughs) (laughs) I'm always struck by his formula of the movement of the camera is in perfect sync with the actor's movements, right? It never calls attention to itself. There are, there's a lot of movement, but it's always so ingrained in, it's a dance with the performers. It's a dance with the blocking. And I mean, I'd love to, you know, interview. Hi, I'm David Fincher's favorite Dolly. (laughs) Because that person is like a choreographer, right? They move it's just, it's breathtaking how seamless that part of it is. He has movement in almost every shot. I mean, I've, I've watched so many yeah. breaking downs of it and you didn't like, and I wanted to like piggyback on that. Yeah. You almost didn't even notice. I, I don't think I ever noticed mm-hmm. that he has at least a move in almost every single shot. You know, it was like, uh, oh, what's that guy's name? Wordsmith or nerd writer or something. I watch all his videos. I love them on YouTube and stuff. And he was showing that like in girl with a dragon tattoo, like, Daniel Craig is only just having a realization and you don't realize there's a movement, but with his, there's like a raising up and you know, it's like, they're so ingrained and they're so natural that you almost don't notice them. So true. Yeah. It's almost like a reflection of what the character is doing. That's what the camera does. Yeah. It's it. And it's, it's invisible. He's a, he's a visually splendiferous director, but it's never showy. It's always very Intent. subtle, and his li- obviously he's he's lighting, his lighting is a plus. But it's almost like he spends a lot of time to look like it wasn't lit. Mm-hmm. Does that make yeah. sense? Right. Sometimes yep. you can see a frame and you can go, "Wow, that's beautiful lighting." But in a way, it's kind of pulling you out. It's almost showing off, right? Whereas his stuff is so subtle. There's pools of light, and there's all kinds of like gradation, but it's it's. He took the time and even like he's again, a director's director. Like when you listen to his commentary, he's always like, Oh yeah, 65. And this was a 110, and this was, and you're like, Oh shit. Like this guy knows his equipment even. Right. Which is very impressive. Yeah. Hearing him talk about anything though. I'm like, I just like the level of intelligence. Like it's, it's just a different type of genius. You know, like when he talks about all the things he did behind the camera to learn how to get into filmmaking and all of those things, I'm just like, Jesus, you know, listening to him talk, it's like the level of, of knowledge. But I will say too, like what you were saying, just a comparison. If I look at Seven's coloring or, or some of Fincher's films, like you notice the color, but it never pulls you out as opposed to like Joker. I noticed all of the coloring and I thought it was beautiful, but I noticed it because it pulled, it did pull me out. And like Jill Bagano my color says who did that color, but I'm noticing how, Oh, they have the warmth on the face and then the other line. And like, Oh, okay. I'm noticing what they're doing with ventures. Like it's so it, it's invisible. Like you said, like you're noticing it, but it's never bumping you at any point. You almost have to, it's on the fourth time that I'm really noticing what it, that watching it that I'm noticing really, some of those things, why I didn't understand why it impacted me so much or why it felt so heavy and cool and dark. And, you know, now that you have the experience behind the camera and now you have all the information that, you know, the knowledge that you have has grown. Do you go back and watch films now in a different way? Oh yeah. I, I mean, I've always watched film in that way though, because I was always dissecting acting and trying to understand why directors did different things so that I could be a better actor and all of those things. And because I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker now I'm watching, 
I mean, all I'm watching is camera movements. I'm trying to understand what they're trying to elicit from the audience with that camera move or why they did it or going, why did they just do that? Or, you know, like sometimes seeing how they failed, you know, I watched a movie recently. I won't say what it was, but I was just like, you have some of the biggest actors in the world and it's such an interesting film. And I know it's a first time director and I'm watching and every time the actors started to do something interesting, they cut to a wide and I'm just like, uh, I, this is why I don't. And that and that film with Sonic, <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> you, with your son, it might it it might have been though. It might, well it might, might have been. been. And you're like, honey, the mezzanine <laughs> in this blows. We're like, yes, Sonic, exactly. Sonic Two's mezzanine is just not powerful. Um, no, yeah, it, it is fascinating. I mean, they say that you know, watching films, yeah, you watch classics, you try to steal from them, and then, but you're supposed to also just any film. You, even a bad film, you can be like, oh, I won't do that. Mm-hmm. Or that's, I see what they, what went wrong there. But hey, like, here's what I, and I, I want to ask you about this. So you're, you love film, you want to direct. Were you the filmmaker that was the soon to be filmmaker, the wannabe filmmaker that would watch and be like, fuck this girl, man. I could direct the shit out of there. This fucking bitch. Like, how'd she get that chance? Were you a little bitter about it? Or were you like, Never. oh, okay, well, that's interesting. And then when you directed, were you more, and the, and you actually lived it and went through the process, were you more empathetic? Like when you see a cut that's maybe not justified or is kind of a jump, a, a, aka a mistake, are, are you now thinking my, my old head would go to like, Oh, that was a shitty cut way to go. Dumbass. But now I'm like, I bet the actor like didn't deliver in that close up, and they took the snippet and had to go to the wide. Like my empathy is much more like deep and rich. Like every film is hard to make and let's give them their day in court. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I've, I'll say like, there's probably moments where I've maybe been envious, like a little bit salty at like certain things. Cause I'm like, God, I hope I get to do that one day. You know, like I've had moments like that, but I tend to never really be like the oh, fuck that person, this and that, because I just think anyone getting, to, I know exactly what it took to even get to making that film. And anyone who got to the point to be able to do that, I'm like, good for fucking you. Cause I know how hard that is. And it's a really challenging thing. And at least you made it yeah. there no matter what. Yeah. And yeah. like when I, it's more of a, you go girl. Yes. Kind of I'm vibe. very yeah, much like, yeah, yes, yeah. you go. And like, and also, you know, I've, I've, I mean, most of my uh, idols are men and they tell stories in a very different way than women. So it's also like sometimes dissecting what it is that makes women and men so different and where I fall in between there. Cause I kind of have always felt like, once again, I don't really belong in that genre either because a lot of, I mean, not to generalize, but a lot of women, I feel like tell things in kind of a documentary type style, like on the journey, like the Chloe Zhao or the thing or Andrea Arnold or people like that, you know? And then there's people like, what's her name? Catherine Bigelow. That's like, tells a story like any other man and like, you know, like a bro. Exactly. And yeah. so I like, I like thought of myself more of the bro women. Cause there's not like, you know, I have a very healthy masculine to me and, and all of those things. So I've always just been more curious. Like even that show, that movie that I just told you when I watched, they did it the whole movie. That's where I was like, the reason people don't care about your characters as much is anytime they start to get vulnerable, you're, you're keep not letting going us, to the wides and yeah, you're saying, let us empathize. Yes, and yeah, now you, you're not you hitting it. any yeah, empathy. Yeah. And I'm like, that's why this first time filmmaker should have had someone close to him because I'm watching this whole movie and this whole movie has some of my favorite actors. And by the end of it, I don't care about a single one of your characters. So I'm looking at it more like, oh, where was their friend? You know, like, I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh I lost opportunity. Okay. No, I did. I mean, I get that. And it's like, 
I, yeah, I look, I'm of two minds. It's, uh, cause especially like you said, if it's actors that you really want to work with or you've always loved and you're like, oh man, you know, you got your shot with them and like, that's what you're doing. Like, it's, it, it, I can't, some of my lesser, my lesser self will come out at that point, but something like seven is so good. I I wouldn't even presume to be jealous. I'm kind of like, God, I aspire to be jealous of this guy, you know? And I just, Look, I don't know much about the guy. I know I know enough, but I almost don't want to know too much because what I've heard can be a little never meet your heroes. Yeah, kind of, sort of, and but then I hear mixed. Some people love him. I don't. Know. I've heard amazing I, I, I things. I've heard yeah. really negative things. I've heard actors who have worked with him who are like, he was screaming like never more again. tears out of your yeah. left and you're like what <laughs> you know people always say to me they're like you know do you ever think you'll go back to acting i'm like yeah i'll still, have, I'll still act probably if it's with directors that i really respect because i want to learn from them and they're like what about fincher i know how you love him i was like i couldn't last a fincher film i have a very weak mental health system i have a nervous breakdown <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, yeah like it'd be kidding? too like yes no. It would be I too, um, I agree. Like, yeah. 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 Like you'd be emotionally drained. No, but, and, and we're sort of assessing on this, but let's, let's give a minute, a shout out to this script by Andrew Kevin Walker. I mean, I think that that's what really started it off. Yeah. It, it, Fincher made a great film from it, but this script is pretty spectacular. Um, it came out of nowhere. I think it was one of his first things that this guy did. And still, it kind of sets the bar. It's one of the great ta-da reveals at the end. But, and I, you know, now I watch it with fresh eyes. Like, how much are they hinting to that? How, how many light motifs are coming through with, like, you know, things that are said or cuts? And, and he's definitely layering mm-hmm. it in. There's like, the, oh, here's the research. There's a bunch of headless, you know, things. And y- you see that, that it, it shouldn't be a surprise, but I was, I was shocked. I remember that was one of the theater moments where everyone was like, <gasps> you know, like it, it had you. And that was that era too. Like you said, six cents and mm-hmm. like usual suspects. It was the moment where like, for some reason, I, I think it was because of the last gasp of the spec film spec script market that, these films came around with no pre-existing IP, with no rec- brand God recognition, these days. and they had to make a real splash in the spec market where your buyers were reading, you know, a hundred scripts a month, and you had to stand out from the pack. So it was one of those that, like, oh, serial killer, oh, uh, seven deadly, things. oh, but shit, the execution of it is so above and beyond, like, it's going to attract a great director, it's going to attract a great, this was Arnold Copelson's production, and he, I actually had the good fortune to sell him a script back in the day, and I mean, the platoon, he just, he's done it all, he did the popcorn stuff like, like Seven, but he did Porky's. No, listen, within five years, Porky's, Platoon, best film. That's, that's, that's quite, there that's, you go. Falling Down, The Fugitive, Outbreak, Seven, Eraser. I mean, he was on a run. Devil's Advocate. He was wow. on a fucking run. Wow. And so he was a guy looking for scripts, a guy buying scripts. He bought my script back then. 
And it was like, it hit those buttons. And I think Fincher and even this cast and this incredible cast, I think they're all like best in class of each of their roles. You know, it was Gwyneth like emerging as Gwyneth, but not quite Gwyneth. So we could still see her as Tracy. Mm -hmm. You know, it was Morgan Freeman in that perfect moment between leading man and like playing God supporting guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> just like I, what I call it is a male actor's hunt for rec- red October pivot where you go from being the virile leading man to being the slightly older, wiser, whatever type guy, right. That, that you shift it a little bit to the left and you allowed the new leading man to come in and be that leading man. So what was great about the two of them is, and I never noticed this, Brad Pitt is clearly pay, playing wrath throughout the whole movie. I, I, it's funny when I saw it as a young man, I was like, yeah, he's impatient and angry. Like that's how life is, right? Fuck all these fucks. They don't know. And I, that's because I was an angry young man, mm. right? So now I watch it and I'm more closer to Morgan Freeman's age. And I'm like, oh, Brad Pitt is such a young, dumb, <laughs> fucking impatient shithead. Like shut up and listen, shut up and listen. You know, if he had shut up and listen, think about it. Mm-hmm. His wrath killed his wife. Yep. And that's what he has to live with. And that was that realization that came across his face at the end as if I wasn't angry. I would have seen what the photographer was. We could have stopped all this. If I wasn't angry, I wouldn't yelled after him. My name's Detective Mills, M-I-L-L-S, fuck you. And then so the guy went and got his name and his address and killed his wife. It was because of his temper. It was because of his anger. Even when he you showed know, up to the house and kicked the, like all of that stuff, had he not shown up the to the door, house, he could have, like, he could have, yeah. And he literally, with all due respect, he, he could, he, he could have ruined that case mm-hmm. with that. He was right. Like the, the, the Somerset character was absolutely right. That could have been fruit of the poison tree and he would have got off. All that evidence would have been, would have been left out of the case. That entire house and everything in it would have been left out of the case in a real world legal situation. Right. But it's, it's, it's great to see his impatience and angst throughout the whole movie. The reason that the wife relates to Morgan Freeman as well. He's Morgan Freeman. We all relate yeah. to this guy, like <laughs> said. but she can see his sensitivity. I can't tell him I'm pregnant and I'm ambivalent about it. I need to tell you, you're a stranger, but you're so empathetic and you're so wise. I need this energy. I love my husband, but he's kind of a knucklehead still. And I know that I'm, I'm a little bit, and you see that. I mean, I was, I was married then. My wife looked like Gwyneth, whatever, but it was like women are a little, are a little more mature than men in their twenties and thirties. I think, a little? and they're just a little wiser. Yeah, no, well, no, you're not. We can we can debate the amount, but but it is that thing. Look, I think whatever we can talk about why, but it, I think it just boils down to you have to bear a child. You must grow up faster, you know, from fourteen or thirteen or whatever it is, because somewhere always in your periphery is that crushing responsibility, and it forces you to just grow up a little bit, just to know that that's an issue in your also, life. Also, I think the danger with, that can come the from danger, being a and woman. And the danger. Yeah, because yes, it can be this, taken right, from Situational you awareness. Point. Yeah, and, and you can't okay. overpower a man, so you kind of have to be able to figure out... You have to outsmart him. Yeah, you have to... Yeah. Read, read the signs, yes. Have that subtlety, yeah. And so 
that was the thing that struck me as, and, and one of the things that we love about films. I always use the, 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 the analogy of heat, which is one of my favorite movies. And also a side of Michael Mann is that you watch that film as a young person and you go, kick ass action scenes, bro. They're kick. They're, they're, you know, look at that bank heist. It's fucking awesome. And then you kind of like, Oh, what's all this emotional stuff? And well, I don't care about the wife and get back to the action and da, 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 da. But now, you know, 20 years later, I watch it and I watch for the emotional stuff. I was just about to say, see what I like about that film. I saw it much later, but it's my husband's one of his favorites. And like, you know, I was never, I've never really been into big action films or things like that. So when I watched it, I was like, no, I've never seen it. And then I watched it and I was like, oh no, because it's stimulating. There's story, there's emotions, it's there's vulnerability. Very, yeah, there's relationships it, in that Yes, movie. it's it's operatic. And so, yes, yeah, so now I rewatch it. it. It's what I mean about how film, like going back to what you said, the sort of power of film as a, as some sort of like, I don't know if it's some, if it's a, if it's a palliative, I don't know if it's a best friend. I don't know if it's some sort of emotional tool, but they stay the same and we change. Mm -hmm. And so we can pick up when they're great, we can pick up nuances and subtleties and maybe see it more like the filmmaker intended, or maybe just get what we need out of it. So in this case, I watch seven now closer to the wiser mentor character in age and in experience than I was back then. And I'm like, laughing at Brad Pitt the way that Morgan Freeman is like, oh, you knucklehead, like, good. I'm glad you have the energy and you want to run around and kick ass. We need that too, but slow down a little bit, take in the signs, take in the facts, take in the, you know, and that what's great is they're both too much of their own thing, right? I was just Morgan's, about to say there's uh, flaws the in him too, though. Like he's almost a little correct. too complacent. He, he's and, trying to give and, up. And that's why, yes. And that's why they both need each other. He, Brad Pitt, He's lost when we meet, we meet him. You could argue he's the main character. We start off with him. He's, he's done, right? It's like, it's the classic cop trope, like I'm three days from retirement. I'm yeah. too old for this shit. <laughs> Seven days from retirement. It's that old chestnut, but it's Morgan Freeman. So we give it a little extra weight, a little extra emotional heft. And he, he does sell that. Like, I just can't do this anymore. I can't, I don't have the strength to take this anymore. And then you have Brad Pitt, who's all energy and all like, yeah, I can't wait. And I, I chose this and I fought to get this job and they're both too much on opposite poles. So by the end of the film, they're, they're in that scene with the, the poor guy that was with the sex apparatus and the lust killing. Mm -hmm. And they're both saying to the captain, like, he's not done. This isn't over. And he actually says, you know, for the first time since I've met you, we're in full agreement. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And that's a big moment for the film. Like I don't, we could argue who the main character is, but I think maybe the main character is the partnership. Mm -hmm. Right. And how the young man inspires him to want, remember he says, I got to stay. I got to, I, I got to stay. He kept saying, no, 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 no. And then he's like, I got to stay. I got to file this. I got to see this through right by the end. And Brad Pitt, is all like balls and fucking bravado in the beginning. And he starts to see that this old fuck knows some stuff and maybe I should like take from his pages. So they become better. 
they they empower each other and they change each other. Say, then they become real so, partners. Uh, like when I think of that partnership, uh, yeah. I think of them both asleep on the couch in the waiting room, waiting for the the fingerprints to say, you know, and like yes, and that's the yes, and they're leaning mm-hmm. on each other like a very familiar, like a couple. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, I love that. It's shot. also different when you watch it now too, because like as soon as you start to really like Gwyneth, like that's the thing is like, I didn't know that when I was young and watching the film, but now I watch it. I'm like, it's a classic fucking movie move. They made her too likable, which means she's gonna die. Hello, man. It's Trace, Trace in Somerset. Hello. Very happy to meet you. I've heard a lot about you. Except, of course, your first name. Oh, it's William. Hmm. Oh, it's a good name, William. William, I'd like you to meet David. David, this okay. is good. All right, I'm gonna. I'll be right back. How are the kids? They're good. They're in the room. Come on. In. She's so charming in that little dinner scene. Why aren't you married, William? Oh, Trace, what the hell? I was close once. Just didn't happen. It surprises me. It really does. Well, anyone who spends a significant amount of time with me finds me disagreeable. Just ask your husband. Very true. Very, very true. She's charming at the diner. You just want to fucking hold her in your arms. And the next thing you know, her head's in the box. I'm like, yep, should have known. As soon as you love her uh, character, they're dead. They're dead. <laughs> you know? Spoiler and by alert. the way, shout Spoiler out alert. to oh, shout out to the Quality Cafe <laughs> Diner featured in Training Day and in uh, Seven and Old School. Oh, yeah. Many of your most favorite movies. Downtown L.A., it's where the two characters in Training Day meet. It's where these characters meet to talk about the baby. It's where in old school, they're like, oh, you are, a, you are the godfather. Please, I cannot take your money. And, uh, and so many others. And, and so I'm watching that scene and I'm like, okay, so how does Fincher tackle this? Does he have a unique angle? And he doesn't. He uses the same establishing shot they all use. There's a, sometimes he, he has a famous quote. It's like, you know, there's where the camera should be and there's the wrong place. Like, and, and it, that's the way to saying like, sometimes he, uh, not all of his angles are like, Oh my God, how staggeringly unique. A lot of his stuff is medium shot, wide shot, this lens, that lens, but there's just something about the, the overall, how he, pu- how he puts it together of that, that becomes his own, right? Like there's only so many ways to shoot a two person conversation, let's say. Right. But somehow he, in his all of the, when he's using all the filmmaking tools, he makes it unique and something we haven't seen before. Even the color. With that being said, Alex, do you agree that it's one of Fincher's B-sides movie, B-side movies yet? Or are you still, is this still under protest? It makes me more convinced that it is, it's, it's undisputed oh. A. <laughs> well, we Nadine, we tried because it really is a perfect film. Like we have to pick, like, we have okay, to pick another movie. Fight Club now. is Fight Club is not a perfect film. Fight Club is an astounding film and an original film. 
and a groundbreaking film and an influential film. But the script is nowhere near as like tight as a drum as yeah, this. The script for seven. It goes is, this yeah. and this and this and this and we're done. And it has procedure and it has action. By the way, can we just have a five minute conversation about the chase scene? Because when you see this movie or even you like look for it somewhere, it's classified as a thriller or a horror or whatever. And those imply action, suspense, drama, whatever. It's a very quiet, slow, foreboding, mm-hmm. right? It kind of plods along. Here's here's the first death. Here's the first crime scene. It's like the music is very like moody and like makes us like very nervous. But then it's almost like Fincher's like, oh, I'll direct you an action scene. I'll blow your yeah. fucking doors off, you know? And and that chase, I watched it like four times. I'm like, oh, that's a great shot. Oh, that's a Even great shot. Even just the oh, that's gun, the cut. way he shot the angle of the gun pressed yeah, against his temple and the yeah. way that he only showed the barrel yes. and like the way, it's yes. like everything And he has that did. outline. You don't, you can't see him. Yes, it's a lot. It's uh, so much Kaiser Soze. Yeah. He's wearing the hat and the coat and the shadow and the, like the presence over the individual, I feel like seven just in the same way. And by the way, I think 95 was also the matrix for not mm. for nothing. So it, I feel like seven not only influenced the crime procedural detective story that resonated through all the CSIs that resonated through all that stuff, but the style of it rippled through comic books yeah. and music videos, as you said, a lot of that water stuff you see everywhere, right? It's just so much influence that just kind of unfolded over decades even. I'll say too, though, going back to the thriller, like part of it, like everything you're saying, like, is, I just, I love your, your take on everything. And like, it's, it opens your eyes. But even when you're talking about the thriller part of it, it's, it is almost like just a procedural, there is no action. They're kind of always looking and the deaths already happened. And like, and then it takes a turn, like the chase sequence. But I think at lust at that point, no, the chase sequence is the turn. Yeah. The chase sequence is the turn where it becomes more action oriented because why? Because it's like the classic structure. They, they're behind him. Mm-hmm. They're behind the eight ball. They're, they're following him. They're, uh, as Morgan Freeman says, we just clean up the mess, right? Yeah. And it's not until that sequence where they, you know, actually interact with the criminal. And by the way, I also wanted to say uh, early, early pre 9-11 statement of the man is what Big Brother's watching, right? What is the breakthrough of this film? The breakthrough of this film is they've completely run out of legal options. Morgan Freeman makes a call and he pays off an FBI guy to give him access to the Project Echelon fucking library data mm-hmm. that we all know that they're gathering, but they claim that they're not, which after the Patriot Act of 2001 and two basically just became public knowledge, which is beware. They are watching you. They, As he said, we can't get a warrant off of it, but we certainly can you know, start the ball rolling. So basically, again, so many of our movies glamorize violence, glamorize guns as an empowering tool. But even this stuff, you put us in the mind of being on the side of Big Brother, bending the Constitution to get the bad guy. It's a classic revenge thriller trope, right? I don't give a shit about the rules. I'm so driven to get this greater evil that I'm willing to start to become evil. 
right? So the question is, is when they do that, it does that, is that a thematic like nod to like, and now they're going to pay, you know, and now that they've, they've given up the moral high ground. Yes. It gave them what they wanted in terms of plot and structure and, and their overt needs in the real world. But, but that they the now thing become that what they... brings down his entire world in the end of the film. You know what I mean? It, it gives them what they... Right. And so that's the moral question that the viewer has to ask is, it, it, it's, it's uh, who is it, Nietzsche? You know, like when you stare into the abyss, eventually the, the abyss like stares it. back at, into mm-hmm. you, right? And so is this that moment? Is this when they're like, I don't give a shit how we do it. We're doing it. And then it's much more visually over when he's like, no, no, no. You know why we got here. We can't, we have to come up with some sort of way to get in this room. We can't just kick the door down, kick the door down because we want him to, we want him to kick the door down in the same way that Fincher said later, we want him to shoot John Doe. We need him to shoot John Doe because we built up, we, the filmmakers, him speaking this way, we've built up the bloodlust to the point where there must be vengeance, mm-hmm. right? Because there was early conversation. First of all, a lot of the studio guys and whatever were like, no head in the box, fuck all this shit. That was the spec that was bought. And they immediately started to try to buff down the edges. And Fincher... Uh, they sent him the wrong draft and he's like, this is awesome. And they're like, no, 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 no. Don't read that one. Read the, no, I want to do this. And it became a point of contention where he and Brad Pitt said they would leave. And wow, they told, I never knew that. Yeah, they oh, told. Yeah. It's my favorite yeah, part man. about it. And it, uh, I think it was the writer, that, right? Or it was someone who. It was Arnold. No, it was Arnold Copelson. Who, yes, I think the yeah, writer the wrong, subverted the process. Yeah, the wrong I think said, he oh, purposely, yes. <laughs> Oops, sorry. Whoops, I didn't no. mean to create a controversy. But that was Arnold Copelson saying, no, it's too much. We got to like buff that back. And it became a war. Blood. You've made quite a life for yourself, Detective. Mm. You should be very proud. Shut the fuck up, you piece of shit. California, stay away from here. Stay away from here now. Don't, don't, don't come in here. Whatever you hear, stay away. John Doe has the upper hand. Mills! Of course, now that's what we remember most, you know? But my favorite line of, of Fincher was, because he had done Alien 3 before this. And so he's like, ugh, you know, no more studio movie, I'm done. His quote was, I thought I'd rather die of colon cancer than do another movie. But eventually agreed to direct seven. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Never heard that either. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But um, yeah, so it's it's that thing where it's always the thing that almost doesn't happen or the mistake that happens on the set that, that wasn't planned. That everyone's yeah. like, that's yeah. the thing. That's the movie moment. But that's 
And a lot of great directors say that. They're like, I'm just here to wait for the happy accident. See, but that's my like, other thing keep... too, though. Those are the things that so many people don't want to do anymore. They don't want to take the big risk. That's why like, it's my first film, I was like, I'm going to take the biggest shot ever. And I think that in the end, it'll work out or maybe it won't. But like, it'll I feel like, I'll, yes, it'll at least be me. At least I, I you know, I, I made the film I want to make. But like, those are the things that I feel like so many people aren't doing as much of anymore, but those are the things that we remember. That's what made so many of us want to watch those movies and go back and watch it 10 more times. And it's like, we need to get away from this, like just because it's commercial and the way that people, you know, why they make films and how they make films now in the safe way that it is and how it can sell and, you know, making sure you can get your money back and all of those things. But the United, United artists days or I can't remember the company, but, that gave those directors their chance and would give them final cut and take these huge chances. It's like, that's what made the directors what they were at that time, because it was their name on the line and it was their vision. And it was these huge chances, you know, I feel that not mm-hmm. everyone ma- takes any, every all the time anymore. No, definitely not. It's, it's scary to step out on that plank. I think Nadine Crocker, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Are you kidding? Thank yes, you for having really me. It's seriously Thank you so for cool hearing you guys talk about film. Like Alex, you have such a knowledge. Like I'm, I can't even understand how you know so much about so many films of all different times. And so, you know, it's really cool. It's really amazing to learn from you guys and, and listen and be a part. So thank you. Nadine has a film coming out. It's called continue. It will be in the links below and she's working on three other projects that are coming out. We hope to have her back someday when she's done with those and has time for us. Yeah, it's great to meet unique voices and it seems like you're pretty self-aware because you certainly meet a lot of people in this business that don't know why they're here. They don't know why they're doing it. They're kind of like Brad Pitt in Seven. They're out here, they're pissed off, they got a lot of energy, they got a lot to say. And I was that guy too. And it seems like you've been through your own personal journey and you came out intact and stronger for it. And you're making films for the right reasons. And you are understanding that the obstacles just lead to more progress. Yeah. Well said. I mean, I would have said, thank you. I would have said something like she's pretty well balanced for a crazy person. (laughs) (laughs) i love you nadine you're you're amazing you're so fantastic great to meet you You want to take us out alex yes all right gang thanks for sticking around this is how i got greenlit i'm I'm alex legion with my co-host he's ryan gibson this is nadine crocker check her out oh and we will see you and hear you hold on nadine i do do you want to give out your we do do social media stuff so do you want to give out your social media while we have it it's at, yeah, it's just Nadine Crocker at Nadine at Nadine Crocker. Crocker. Yeah, check her out. She posts a lot nice. of fun stuff on there. Easy to remember. So sorry to cut you awesome. off, Alex. I didn't mean to do that, but we you, <laughs> no, no, we no. try to use that, this platform that, as a why, promotion too. Why? Why? Why would we actually? End no, that's stupid. Another ten minutes. How I got greenlit. All right, thanks, Scott. How I got. Yeah, thanks, everybody. Thank you.
porn, Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. Indecent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. Next Chapter Podcasts.